0: Live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Studios, it's the Press Box Summer Edition. Come on, football, go, go! come on, play football! Tyler Bischoff.
1: Wow, you work here? Best seat in the house. Yeah, you do! I've
0: been laughing for too long.
2: And Adam Candy.
0: Doesn't this seem like cheating? She's rich. She's cheating at life. On ESPN Las Vegas.
1: Ed Graney is gone, but we will talk to him a little bit later in the show. Adam Candy filling in. And Adam, just so you know, Josh Donaldson's walk off Grand Slam last night, not possible without Rob Manfred's Ghost Runner on second.
0: And also, the Yankees being down three was not possible without Rob Manfred's Ghost Runner on second. So we can play the fake baseball game all you want
1: set up the perfect scenario down three with the bases loaded what everybody dreams of Josh Donaldson and the rest of the Yankees should be sending Rob Manfred thank you letters this morning
0: yeah because otherwise you know then the double that Mejia hits is just a double and Josh Donaldson still wins it with a home run so you know it's still a fake piece of uh, what should be baseball history but here we are the first bite
1: Will the Raiders
0: have a top 10 offense?
1: The Ringer put out rankings for offensive and defensive units uh, this week. Shio Kapadia is over at the Ringer now, and he used DVOA, EPA, and adjusted games lost, uh, stuff that sounds great to Adam and I. Maybe you don't know exactly what all of it is. That's okay. Analytics, it's scary numbers and stuff. But basically... Using some of that, he went through and ranked all of the offenses and then the defenses in the NFL. The Raiders this year in the offseason went out and traded for Devontae Adams, gave up some picks, and then gave him a bunch of money. Locked up Derek Carr, inherited a locked-up Colton Miller, locked up Hunter Renfro. They obviously didn't fix the offensive line, but they spent a lot of money and a lot of resources on their offense this offseason. But... They come in ranked just 13th, according to The Ringer. And here is what Shio Kabatia wrote about the Raiders. As with everything in football, a lot comes down to the quarterback. Derek Carr has had eight seasons as a starter, and only twice has he led a top 10 offense by DVOA. Now he has a great set of weapons with Devontae Adams, Darren Waller, and Hunter Renfro, but will be playing behind an offensive line that is a major question. Uh, Thrawn ranks the group 27th going into the season. If you handed this offensive personnel to McVay or Reed or Sean Payton, it'd probably easily be a top 10 unit. If McDaniels is indeed a great offensive coach, the Raiders should outperform this ranking. So I want to start where that ended on Josh McDaniels because another part of this breakdown of the Raiders was looking at the six seasons McDaniels has coached an offense without Tom Brady and they have finished in DVOA 7th 18th 17th 32nd 23rd and 10th so what should we expect out of Josh McDaniels and what do you think of the line about if this was McVay Andy Reid Sean Payton it's easily top 10 but with McDaniels they're slotting it at 13th for now
0: I think what we're looking at here is a very friendly view of those three coaches that you mentioned and their ability to work around problems because you have great skill on offense at the skill positions and you have major questions along the offensive line and I think what we've seen is that the great offensive coaches can take the best parts of what you give them and make something great out of it. It's almost like, you know, chopped on the food network, right? Like, no matter what's in that basket, if they can find the one or two ingredients that have a little bit of potential, then they can work around the pagan trails or whatever else is in there. So I think that's what you're saying about those coaches. And is Josh McDaniels that guy? I have no idea, to be honest, right? You talked about the six years without Tom Brady. Well, I think, to be fair, on the other side of it, last year he had a rookie quarterback who started off well and then the league got some film and adjusted to him and then I mean honestly he did some of that with Tim Tebow <laughs> so you know I don't know that we can be too harsh on the other side I, so the Tim Tebow
1: stuff I think he does deserve blame because he's the one that got Tim Tebow but when you're actually about that's like the you know personnel decision making the actual coaching part you know once you realize that oh you have tim tebow it's probably fair to give him a little bit of a pass and last year with mac jones they were 10 that was one of the years they were actually top 10 without brady so it was still a, a fairly efficient offense despite having a rookie quarterback in mac jones but the idea of you know hiding weaknesses or coaching around or playing around weaknesses that's the fascinating part of this to me because In New England, like, do the Patriots, do they always have a great offensive line? Sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't, but it didn't always seem to matter. It felt like Tom Brady and Bill Belichick and maybe Josh McDaniels could coach around that, could play around that. And I'm curious to see exactly what happens this year because McDaniels and and this offense should be able to. I mean, there's at least a path there, and we saw it last year with the Bengals. They had a bad offensive line but we're still a good team, still won the division, still end up going to the Super Bowl. Can the Can the Raiders do that? Can they basically follow that same blueprint? And I think a lot of this, it goes to the first thing that Capatia wrote about there. It comes down to the quarterback. Throughout his career, Derek Carr and pressure, that, that's been one of the big problems for Derek Carr is what happens when he's under pressure, what happens when he doesn't have a great offensive line. If he can handle the pressure this year, if he can, hey, I know I'm going to be under some heat the majority of the season because the offensive line is Thayer Munford and Lester Cotton, then the Raiders offense is probably going to be fine if there are times or the majority of the season where Carr has reverted back to what we've seen before, where he's not very good in the pocket under pressure, where he takes uh, you know, goes down early or throws the ball away early because there's a little bit of pressure that he could avoid, then the Raiders offense probably isn't thirteenth best this year. It's probably gonna be outside the top half, and that could be what ultimately sinks the team.
0: Uh, Tyler, again, I have to actually use numbers and math to back up these vague assertions that you're making. uh, (laughs) It's annoying, honestly. I wish you would embrace the numbers. Uh, Derek Carr last year, according to Warren Sharp, without pressure, 0.22 EPA expected points added per attempt, 53% success rate, 8.1 yards per attempt, 75% completion rate. Sounds pretty good, right? Now contrast that to last year uh, with pressure. 0.36 0.36 negative EPA per attempt, 32% success rate, 6.8 yards per attempt, and a 54% completion rate under pressure, which are pretty close to league average numbers on both sides of it. But it shows a 21% difference in completion rate with and without pressure. So, you know, Derek Carr might not be as notably bad under pressure with the happy feet and all that that we talked about three or four years ago anymore. But he's also not a quarterback who has shown that he's going to elevate under pressure and get past it. And so I think what we keep talking about here is the offensive line. And I think if you're McDaniels and you're coaching around it, that ball's got to come out fast. And I don't think that that's something that necessarily takes advantage of all of the skill that's in this offense, right? What are the great Devontae Adams plays we remember with Aaron Rodgers? There are a lot with Aaron Rodgers extending a play and making something happen, and Devontae Adams not being coverable for that length of time. So I think that's where we're going to really see what McDaniels can do, because it seems pretty likely, considering every ranking we see of the Raiders' offensive line, including Warren Sharp calling them the 25th best unit in the league, has them in the bottom 10. 25 is pretty high. Uh, That's got to be exciting. If they've got the
1: 25th best offensive line, that'd be pretty good. So... If, you, if we go off this idea that the Raiders are going to have the 13th best offense, and by the way, that would put them 7th best offense in the AFC and last in the AFC West. But if we go off the idea that they're the 13th best offense in football, is that good enough for them to be a playoff team? Like that That's the strong unit on this team. The offense is supposed to be better than the defense this year. So presumably, and, and we might get into it here, the the Raiders' defense ranks 22nd, according to Shio Kapadia. If they're 13th on offense and have an expected below-average defense, are they a playoff team?
0: No. I don't think that's even close, to be honest. Uh, we've talked about it for what, however many years here that the offense has to carry the defense, and what we saw early last year was a surprise, right? We saw the defense actually making up for some issues with the offense, but then, of course, uh, look, the Raiders got an enormous set of breaks down the stretch for that not to matter, right? Uh, You've got the Browns and the Colts with major COVID issues down the stretch. You've got Drew Locke and the Broncos, and then, of course, the (laughs) weird game against the Chargers where they get themselves into the playoffs in the final week. So, The Raiders had a lot of things break their way last year, including being seven and one in one score games, actually seven and two uh, in one score games. So, you know, there are a lot of things where you look and say the defense was just good enough last year and just good enough would be fine, right? They're going to get some pressure on the quarterback with having the two edges that they have. But on the other side of that, the secondary is notably worse in terms of the talent that's there. And you also see that they're going to face a much more difficult schedule this year. They are facing, by that same metric, the third hardest schedule in the NFL. And if you look at the variance from last year to this year, they are going to face nearly a increase of, what, every way you look at it, these teams are going to be better on offense and on defense than they, than they faced last year.
1: Yeah, the, the schedule and ultimately... The division which plays a big part into that i think that's the biggest problem for the raiders because they could have a pretty good season they could have a you know pretty good team and still be last in their division like if you put this team in a few other divisions like the nfc north for example they're, they're probably the second best team and they probably have much easier games and have a shot to go to get into the playoffs as a wild card or a much better shot they still have a shot obviously but like i think being in the division and, and we talked about this at one point during the offseason when they traded for Devonte Adams and and made the move for Chandler Jones was like how much does it matter when you're going for it how much does your division competition matter because the Broncos are going for it the Chargers are going for it obviously the Chiefs are in the middle of going for it like ev- when everybody in your division is going for it and you're the one projected to be at the bottom it's not really good timing now is McDaniel's really going to walk in and say hey let's rebuild again. I can understand why a coach wouldn't do that, but the timing organization-wise, the team's just they're just in the wrong division. I mean they they're probably a good solid playoff team in the NFC in a different division, but because they're in the AFC West and honestly the AFC as a whole where there's what 11, 12 teams that probably think they're playoff bound this year, it's just there's so much there's so much competition that if not everything goes right, if you're not 7 and 2 in one-score games again, you're probably not going to the postseason. The
0: Raiders this year are favored by more than three points in one game, and it's expectedly week seven against Houston. Other than that, they're either an underdog or less than a three point favorite against every team they face, if you want to put some context to how difficult the schedule is, because they're matched up with the NFC West, and you have three teams that legitimately think they're playoff teams in the NFC West with the Cardinals, the Rams, and the 49ers. And then when you look at the AFC South the other division they're matched up against the Colts believe they're a playoff team as do the Titans and I happen to be a believer that the Jaguars are going to be significantly better this year than they were last year then they also faced the Patriots reasonable thought of a playoff team the Saints definitely a playoff team in the NFC and the Steelers who are always going to be a challenge so when you look at the Raiders schedule you say what are the layups on the Raiders schedule Well, it's the Texans, maybe it's the Jaguars, and then it's the Seahawks. And other than that, there is not a game on this schedule that you look at and comfortably say, hey, the Raiders are going to get that one. So when we talk about these things like, well, are they a number 13 offense versus a number 10 offense? Are they a bottom 10 defensive unit versus a middle 10 defensive unit? That's where the edges matter. That's where those little pieces of are they the 14th or are they the 10th really matter because there are going to be very few games this year where the Raiders have margin for error.
1: Are the Jags going to be much better
0: this year because Doug Peterson is going to actually fly home with the team after every game? I have not investigated whether Doug Peterson has a restaurant in any <laughs> of the cities that the uh, Jaguars will play in this year, but I do believe that Doug Peterson alone will be able to give Trevor Lawrence a more a more stable environment. Can you imagine walking into a new job if you're Trevor Lawrence? You walk into a brand new job, and what you find is a college environment worse than the one you just left. <laughs> I actually think uh, Doug We talk a lot about
1: guys having to replace, you know, some all-time great. Doug Peterson might be walking into the lowest bar of expectations anybody's ever walked into. Plus he might have a really good quarterback. Like Trevor Lawrence could still go on to be an awesome quarterback and Peterson might just walk in and be like, ah, this is
0: easy. What happened here the year
1: before? It'll be fun. Can you
0: imagine Trent Balky, the GM of the Jacksonville Jaguars setting the expectations for Doug Peterson? Like, like at the beginning of the year, after they hired (laughs) Doug Peterson, like, all right, Doug, listen, here's what we need for you to do. Uh, you're going to have to fly home with the team required every single week. Um, Can't tell you to do this, but we strongly suggest no grinding on co-eds. And um, uh, the kicker, listen, no matter what the kicker says to you, can you do me a favor and not actually kick him? Uh, Beyond that, uh, it's all kind of gravy. All right, coming up next, we'll jump into some college football because
1: we might have a breakaway from the NCAA, and the Big Ten is getting a whole bunch of money. Blocked away by Keyshawn Gilbert. Keyshawn, great pass up ahead to Rodriguez for the slam dunk. Gilbert steals a pass. Heads into the front court. Gilbert underneath to Webster. Lays it up and in.
0: All of the sun, none of the fun on the Press Box Summer Edition.
1: UNLV actually beat Calgary, won a game on their Canadian trip. We'll get more into that in the front page. Also, coming up in about 10 minutes is Daniel Popper of The Athletic to talk some Chargers and Brandon Staley. Now, in the world of college football we had some news this morning that the big 10's new television deal is done they are signing with uh multiple outlets here fox cbs and nbc are all involved here and the report from the athletic is that is going to be a seven-year deal worth over seven billion dollars meaning that the big 10 going to be bringing in at least a billion dollars per year and They'll be on three of the major networks pretty much every Saturday between Fox, CBS, and NBC. Now, keep that in mind as we talk about uh, the other topic that uh, could be big news in college football. Apparently, there's a board of managers of the college football playoff, and according to ESPN – the Board of Managers briefly discussed the possibility of restructuring how college football is governed with the idea presented of major college football potentially being governed outside of the NCAA. Um, there's a couple of parts here. One, the question would be who would govern college football then? Apparently, the Board of Managers of the College Football Playoff think they should be the ones to govern college football outside of the NCAA but also part of the reasoning here is simply money and that the source told ESPN that the general feel among presidents and chancellors was that sports leaders have left too much money on the table by not implementing a new college football playoff before 2026, perhaps as much as a half billion dollars. Uh, obviously, college football playoff expansion was going to happen last fall, and then nobody could agree on how many teams or how many automatic qualifiers. So they just decided not to expand. And apparently a lot of people think that that costs college football a lot of money or these teams and conferences, a lot of money. So on the idea of breaking away from the NCAA, um, it it feels inevitable, right? It's just a matter of when and exactly how. Of
0: course, the Power Five specifically outgrew the NCAA structure a long time ago. And name, image and likeness is only going to exacerbate that. So, you know, you look at some of the numbers and see that last year, the Associated Press estimated that a 12-team college football playoff would be worth about $1.9 billion annually uh, using research from Navigate Research. Uh, currently, ESPN is playing paying the CFP $470 million per year. You assume that's going to grow quite a bit uh, when it comes to the CFP. So the economics alone only support the Power Five in college football. And maybe you can lump some of the Group of Five schools in that but beyond that no one else plays in the same end of the pool as these schools and so the NCAA's governance structure really doesn't seem to make a lot of sense for the power five anymore especially the more we talk about the evolving NIL landscape so
1: the idea of football breaking away from the NCAA it not being an official NCAA sport controlling all of its own rules and everything when we have the same day the news story about the Big Ten having a seven billion dollar television deal where each school is going to make more than 60 million per year in the Big Ten and you compare that with like oh the Mountain West like UNLV might make five or six million dollars on its new television deal like we're, we're talking more than 10 times the amount of money when you hear oh there might be a breakaway from the NCAA do you assume That is the power conferences making a clean break from the group of five as well? Or do you hear that and think, well, the power five and the group of five are going to break away. And then maybe there's a separate break later, but at least the breakaway from the NCAA will include the group of five, too.
0: I think logic says it's just going to be the power five. But now we start to get into waters that are a little deeper than I know how to navigate because I'm not sure what would end up happening in court if the group of five challenged this in some way, right? If the NCAA challenged this in some way, because I'm sure that the NCAA is not necessarily going to let go of the hold of college football (laughs) too easily. So the group of five schools have had a place in the playoff if they excel above (laughs) and beyond anything that a middling Notre Dame team does. Right I use Notre Dame as the example because they were the eternal number five in all of college football. And then when they get into the playoff, they tend to get waxed. So if you can be better than Notre Dame, then you can have a spot in the college football playoff. But beyond that, unless this playoff is going to expand out to 16 teams, then I don't see where the group of five has any place. And frankly. You know, Cincinnati didn't exactly acquit itself last year when it made it into a CFP semifinal. We see it year after year after year that people argue for the group of five teams to get into the college football playoff, into those semifinals. And in the instances where we've seen it happen, they get destroyed. And I keep hoping it's going to be enough for people to stop arguing for it. And yet we love a Cinderella story enough and we love saying, oh, we don't want to see Clemson and Georgia again. Yeah, but those are the games you tune into. And guess who are the top four again this year? Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, and Clemson.
1: So on the idea of the the college football playoff expanding outside of anything about college football breaking away from the NCAA, them not expanding beyond four, like, did we really have people just mad about how many automatic qualifiers would be in an expanded playoff and cost themselves a bunch of money?
0: Yeah, we, uh, someone's gonna be mad about it no matter what. Let's not kid ourselves when it comes to that. I thought the twelve-team idea actually made a lot of sense. I think adding adding rounds is not a bad thing, right? I know that it sounds like I'm arguing against myself to say, "Oh well, you know, <laughs> if if, you're, if the CF if the group of five teams can't compete in the CFP semifinals, why would you want them in expanded playoff?" Well, no, I, I want them to have something to play a four that's better than the bad boy mower's pinstripe bowl. That's but I goal. also feel like those games need to be more on a level, right? If you're going to give, let's say, the top four teams a bye and have five play 12, then yeah, I think, you know, I think a Notre Dame SMU game could be really entertaining.
1: Yeah, it's it's just fascinating that you have like the SEC that doesn't want any automatic qualifiers because they think if we go to 12 or 16, we'll get seven teams in. But if there's automatic qualifiers, that becomes harder for the SEC to do. Meanwhile, the rest of college football is looking around saying, well, we're in the Pac 12. We want to at least be guaranteed our team gets into a 12 team playoff because our best team might be ranked 15th some year. So oh. I just, it's amazing to me that that could have been the difference between them getting, like you said, like a billion more dollars from ESPN or whoever was going
0: to buy the TV rights for the college football playoff. Well, and now we see part of why, right? Like, look at the timing of this. This all happened before the move of UCLA and USC to the Big Ten started all of the carousel in motion and now yeah if you're the pac-12 you're like whoa hey an aq spot would be awesome and you're like yeah right like if oregon's gonna get in oregon's gonna get in regardless right Like, you know what's gonna happen is if the pac-12 gets an aq spot then you're essentially opening up the door for a colorado or a utah to get in there and you're like oh please don't make me watch this right <laughs> like like uh, they're not getting there on their merits alone please don't make me watch this unless we have a significantly expanded playoff so yeah, you know, it makes a lot of things interesting frankly uh, hearing about this big 10 media deal today the the no espn seven billion dollar deal brings a new story from yesterday into play in which we heard that the ucla governing board the uc regents uh, said all options are on the table when it comes to ruling on ucla's decision to leave for the Big Ten. So it might just be posturing by the Regents, but they're also making noise that they might overrule this. All right, coming up next, Daniel Popper joins the show to talk about Brandon Staley. Listening to the
1: Press Box Summer Edition. Joining us now from The Athletic is Daniel Popper covering the Chargers. Wrote a good story on Brandon Staley from earlier this week. And Daniel, obviously... Brandon Staley, the Chargers going forward on fourth down—you know, being heavier into analytics than most teams—the general idea there is pretty popular in the NFL. But was there like anything in that story, anything with talking to Brandon Staley, like that surprised you? Like, what stood out the most is something you learned from doing that story?
2: Yeah, when I went into writing the story, I thought we were going to be talking a lot about math because that's what it comes down to when teams are creating these win probability models. But we actually spent more time talking about the mindset of the team and even the history of the Chargers. And Brandon Staley, unprompted, brought up this whole idea of chargering, which, you know, Raiders fans are very familiar with. This You know, in the Phillips Rivers era, this idea of the Chargers always having that catastrophic injury, always blowing games late. And he felt like he needed to change that mindset. And he felt the best way to do it was to be aggressive in these fourth down situations and really uh, create an identity for the team of fearless identity is how he described it and that's really how it started for him that was his priority was creating that mindset for Justin Herbert creating that mindset for the team that they're going to go out and take victory and not play conservatively and then the math part of it was was second and that part of it was really interesting to me because I wasn't expecting that to be the case necessarily when I went into the conversation
0: I know this is sort of difficult to quantify but I'll ask you your opinion as someone around the team and around Lee how different do you think the discussion that we're having about Brandon Staley's use of analytics as a way of you know of, of turning the Chargers fortunes around would be different with a field goal difference at the end of last season right if they win that game against the Raiders and make it into the playoffs are we having an entirely different discussion around the Chargers coming into this year
2: Yes, 100%, and I think that's why the conversation around analytics is so misguided, because we focus on results so heavily, right, and especially recent results. I mean, I think that in the Chargers' case and in Brandon Staley's case, it's it's a case study in recency bias, because obviously there was that failed fourth and one in the Raiders game. There was a couple failed fourth downs in that Week 15 loss to the Chiefs on Thursday night, and those two games were in prime time obviously, huge games with the entire nation watching, and that became the narrative that the Chargers missed the playoffs because of how they made decisions on fourth downs. But if you look at the season on aggregate and really look at the data and look at the facts, you know, they won five games earlier in the season almost exclusively because of how aggressive they were on fourth down. Over the course of the season, they arranged in the top five and expected points added on fourth downs despite having one of the worst punt units in the entire league. So, like, overall, they, they benefited from this strategy, but I think people... You know, focused on those final two games, um, focused on the recent results instead of looking at, you know, how did this thing turn out over the course of the entire season? And more importantly, like, was the process good? Was the decision making process good? And it was. Um, and it didn't just, you know, relate to fourth downs. The Chargers had a really clean operation across the board. They were in the top five in the league and in the fewest wasted timeouts. Uh, according to a study by five thirty eight. they only had three delay of game penalties the entire year, and all three of them were on purpose to gain more yards in punting situations. And so you look at sort of their operation overall and the process of how they were making these decisions, and it was really clean, um, and the results also spoke to that.
1: So Staley in this story, he kind of talked about analytics being sort of a almost a trigger word for some people that don't like it. Yeah. And if you rephrase it, that people are more likely to accept it. And you mentioned the mindset of trying to change that. I'm curious. Obviously, we hear it a lot on, on TV during the NFL season, people criticizing Brandon Staley, not liking the way the Chargers go about fourth downs. Does any of that happen inside the organization that you know of? Like, Did he have to win over, or has he still not won over some people within that organization?
2: Not at all. I mean, there's complete agreement in how the Chargers are making decisions,
1: including among the players. Like, the players love to play this way.
2: And Brandon Staley relayed to me an anecdote that he was sitting in his office doing exit interviews, and veteran player after veteran player came in and told him, don't change. Don't ever change. Like, the players love – to play this way because they want to go out and they want to take it. And the players also understand that, listen, our best player is Justin Herbert. I mean, you don't have to be an expert in football to realize that that guy is your best player. Why would you be taking the ball out of his hand? So the, the organization knows that, you know, on a, on, a, on a broader level, that they need to make inroads in this market in Los Angeles. And the best way to do that is to be different and to play a really exciting brand of football. And that's what Brandon Staley brings. And And you bring up the fact that, you know, there's this conversation around analytics and some people disagree with the way they make decisions. And again, look, I think it's a misguided conversation because all it is is more information, right? These coaches with the chargers and brand in particular aren't sitting there and making a decision based on a spreadsheet or a chart. He's just getting fed more information and then he can make the decision. And I think we can all agree that the more information is better. Regardless of what decision you're making, if you're buying a home doing something as small as that on an individual level, You want as much information as possible about that home, the history of the home, was there mold in the house, all those types of things. You want all of that information to make the best decision possible. You're not going to willingly just avoid information that could potentially lead to a better decision, and that's all this is.
0: Daniel, I want to go back to something you just said a minute ago because I think it makes all the sense in the world to discuss the chargers place not only in league as you mentioned you know the idea that the chargers are always going to mess something up in a key spot but also trying to establish themselves in the los angeles market and where justin herbert fits into all of that everything you're talking about with information puts the ball in justin herbert's hands more often and so i'm curious what you think about the idea of Brandon Staley being able to come in with a young quarterback with all of this information and a different style of going about things versus having an established Aaron Rodgers guy who's been there for 15 years and you're trying to convince them of something. Do you think having a young quarterback has been part and parcel to all of that?
2: Yeah, I think that's that's a good point, but I think any quarterback in the league that believes in himself and believes in his skill set wants the ball in his hands. I mean, you go back to that fourth down that LaFleur didn't go for in that in that Packers game. They kicked the field goal. They ended up losing that game. Like Aaron Rodgers wanted the ball in his hand. and so I, I don't think there's much of a difference. Like if a quarterback believes that he's a really good quarterback, he's going to want the ball in his hands in those situations to try and make a play. So I don't think there's much convincing that goes into it in terms of playing aggressively. I think there's probably more convincing that goes into it for the defensive side if you're playing this way because it could you know it could result in oh if we're going for it this many times then that means our coach doesn't believe in the defense. So that I think that is. a a bigger part of the explaining than trying to explain it to your quarterback who wants the ball in his hands in these crucial moments, regardless if you're Aaron Rodgers and 38 years old or if you're Justin Herbert and 24 years old. Uh,
1: One of the details of your story was Brandon Staley looking through a book for a quote. I'm curious, how long did it actually take him to flip through a book for this quote he really wanted to read?
2: (laughs) It's a great question, because it was one of the funniest things about the process of writing the story, was going back and listening to that section of the interview where he was sitting there for, like, literally five minutes, and it was dead <laughs> silent in his office. It was me and him, just the two of us. I was sitting on a couch, he was sitting on a couch, and it was just five minutes in the, in the recording of him just <laughs> flipping through pages. And he told me, just bear with me. Like, this will be worth it. And he's, he's just flipping through the story. So when I wrote in there that it was the flip, flip, flip of the pages, like, that wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't taking any any literary, uh, you know, advantages there. Like, it was that was literally what it was for five minutes sitting there.
1: So regardless of what the actual quote he read, the time that you spent waiting, you have to put that in the story, no matter what.
2: Exactly. It, yeah, just because I thought it was just a great, a great example of how much thought he has put into this. Like you're talking about seven years of reading literature on behavioral economics that he can develop, you know what he thinks is the best way of of making decisions. And he's like something that didn't make it into the story is that this book that he's flipping through. Is just underlined, and there's notes in the margin. Like, this entire thing is very well thought out over the course of his entire life, pretty much, to get to this point and figure out what's the best way to make decisions. Like, he didn't just make this decision flippantly. Like, there's a lot of thought, a lot of detail that went into constructing his decision-making process, and I thought that that example was, uh, was a really indicative of, of that entire process.
1: Well, he is Daniel Popper from the Athletic. Uh, Daniel, good story on Brandon Staley, and we look forward to everybody wanting him fired after Week One when they fail a fourth down against the Raiders again. Thanks, Daniel. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. So, uh, Daniel Popper on the or from the Athletic uh, on Brandon Staley and the Chargers, the Raiders' Week One opponent. Um, kind of, I mean, similar to what you sort of said yesterday about it is the whole recent event thing that hey, you. Uh, The last thing we saw is what we're going to judge things off of. And because the last thing we saw was the Chargers losing and missing the playoffs, Brandon Staley wasn't a success that year.
0: And because it happened on national television on the last game of the regular season that everyone in the world was watching and parsing out every decision. If he does that in week 17 against the Jaguars, if they're already clearly in or clearly out of the playoffs, nobody's talking about it. All right, coming up next,
1: we'll jump into some WNBA because the Aces got their first win on a way to a potential championship.
0: Phoenix now sitting in a 2 3 zone. Gray says, Give me a three. You got that right. Boom, shaka, laka, laka, boom. Chelsea Gray for five points herself. And the Aces are back up by nine. Gustafson back in, rejected by Wilson, and Plum has it. Aces got numbers. Now Phoenix is back. It's three on three. Is Plum down the lane, off the glass, and good KP, and the Aces lead by a dozen. As Sidney Colson dribbles it up, will hold on to the basketball crowd on their feet, and this one will be a wrap. They hold the ball, and 79-63 will be the final And the Aces win game number one of this one. Back to the Press Box Summer Edition.
1: The Aces took game one of their first round series with the Phoenix Mercury 79-63. They outscored Phoenix by 11 in the fourth quarter. Chelsea Gray scored seven straight points to really put that game out of reach and the aces now are one win away from the semifinals. they play again on saturday at home if they lose that they actually go to phoenix for the deciding game three which would be on tuesday of next week which by the way adam let me let me ask your thoughts on the format here because it's the higher seed gets one and two and then the lower seed gets three so the deciding game is at the worst team's home court but They're not even guaranteed a game because they might get swept. Yesterday, the seven-seed New York Liberty upset the two-seed Chicago Sky. So Chicago has to win game two at home and then has to go on the road and win game three at New York. Do you like that format?
0: Why wouldn't we give game one at home and then two and three on the home court? I think that makes way more sense than a potential deciding game being on the road for a team like the Aces that went 26-10 and in the regular season.
1: Yeah, so give the first game to the seven or the eight seed or whatever, and then two and three. I I think if you were doing it this way, trying to find a creative way to avoid traveling back and forth multiple times for a three-game series, I think what you said is right. I think that would be the better way to do it, because the the idea of game one being away from home for the higher seed versus the deciding game, I think everybody maybe not but i think everybody would go with yeah i'd rather have the deciding game at home but i may there might be a level of the wnba being cheap and hoping that there's a bunch of sweeps so they don't even have to worry about traveling at all and I, if they play yeah. game one on the road then everybody has to travel regardless
0: yeah i mean look it all comes down to money in the end and they can say it's about travel you know um, about not wanting to extend travel on these teams And yeah, if you're the kind of league that makes your players sleep overnight in an airport like we saw a couple of weeks (laughs) ago, then yeah, yeah, that might be exactly what it's about. And the other part of this is because the
1: WNBA doesn't do anything by divisions. It's just the top eight seeds. Fortunately for Vegas, they're playing Phoenix, which is you know one of the closest teams to them. But the 4-5 matchup is Seattle and Washington, D.C., which is about as far away as you could possibly get. So the idea of those teams traveling multiple times over a three-game series would be a little ridiculous. I can understand that, but even traveling once in the first round, probably not ideal. Now, on the Aces, I've got uh, a couple of thoughts. One good, one bad from that game. I'll start with the bad one i think that if we look back and the aces don't win the wnba title this year we saw a potential example of it last night the aces offensive rating in game one was 102.6 which still solid but would have been tied for fifth best in the regular season if that's they did the entire year the aces were at 109.6 offensive rating for the entire season which was far and away the best in the league and this is the curious part about postseasons: when you play a series, when you play the same team over and over, matchups and adjustments in-game, in-series that can change things. How good is Becky Hammond at this? Because my assumption is that the offense is going to regress some in the postseason because you're playing the same team over and over. They're going to come up with ways that they might not have used in the regular season to slow down your offense. And the Aces have very much been, a, hey, we're going to outscore our average defense throughout the course of the regular season, how much can they afford that offense to slip back, right? Can they still win if the offense is performing like a middle-of-the-road regular season offense, or do they need it to be the number one offense in the league to win the WNBA title? So I think there's a chance when we look back if they don't win it. It's not that the offense was bad. It's that the offense wasn't good enough to outscore what is an average WNBA defense.
0: I actually think it's the opposite with this team, Tyler. I think the fact that they can win multiple ways is what should be so scary to everyone else. Because if you look at some of these numbers from last night, I'll I'll not even use the advanced numbers. I'll use the basic box score numbers. So 40.6% from the field, including Asia Wilson going 2 of 11 for 8 points. Now, she also had 12 rebounds, 3 blocks, and 3 assists, so not a void of a night from her. But then you look and see Gray, Plum, and Young combining for 55 points on better than 50% shooting and realize that they have ways to get enough offense because the defense was elite. Right, 23 of 75 from the field for Phoenix last night. They had 11 more shot attempts than did the Las Vegas Aces, and they shot 31% overall. So... You questioned, uh, I believe it was last week, you were talking about how the Las Vegas Aces defensive rating had fallen so precipitously during the middle of the season. Well, they played the kind of defensive game they had to last night to win, and that meant they were able to get it done with a MVP candidate in Asia Wilson not really having her best game.
1: Yeah, and I would expect game two, and if this goes to three, that the Aces defense is going to look great again because it's the eight seed, and it's also the eight seed without their top, Technically, it's the eight seed without the top four players they thought they were going to have in the offseason because the Mercury thought they were going to have Diana Taurasi, Skylar Diggins-Smith, Brittany Griner, and Tina Charles. They had to get got rid of Tina Charles in the middle of the season because she didn't like to be there. Diana Taurasi's hurt. Skylar Diggins-Smith is not playing for personal reasons. So I'd expect it in this. The semifinals, whether it's Seattle or D.C., would be interesting. But I will say, I think the reason that we the positive side If we look back and the Aces won the title, I think a big reason is going to be because they won a game with Asia Wilson going 2 of 11. Basically, they have an MVP, maybe the MVP, maybe the runner-up, and they won a game when she did not score very well because Kelsey Plum can go for 20 or 30. Chelsea Gray can take over a game in the fourth quarter, and Jack Young was the best offensive player in the first quarter. They've got four players, four players that can conceivably be the best player in a playoff win, the leading scorer in a playoff win. And I don't think other WNBA teams are going to have that. So that might be why we look back because, Oh, Asia Wilson doesn't have to be perfect every night, or even Kelsey Plum doesn't have to go for 28 every night. Chelsea gray, Jackie young can pick up the slack.